Why you come on back. <clears throat> well, good morning. There are a lot of firsts happening today. One of them is this is the first time I've ever led music and preached on the same day, so you can bear with me on that. You can pray for me. Um, I'm already tired, but all is good. And I don't know why I just picked, I picked some songs that we really are going for it today, so uh, you can pray for my voice to, to be able to, to maintain. Um, the second first uh, is today actually marks one year that our family have been at Redemption Hill Bible Church. And uh, yeah, Thanks. Uh, um, it was actually last year, July 3rd, I have a picture of it, we stood right here, and uh, the day before we had gone to a Mariners game, it was Micah's birthday the day before, but today is obviously his birthday, and so one year, um, and so I just want to say thank you from our family, it just worked out that I happened to be bringing the word uh, this morning, thank you for loving us, welcoming us, caring for us, uh, it's a joy, it's a joy um, to serve you, I know that's what Hebrews talks about, right, to make it a joy, uh, to serve, and, and so uh, that, that's true. On that, I do want to make <clears throat> special mention about what happened uh, this week. Had you come in this building uh, last week, you would have been in a very different place. You would have been in the king's castle, and the walls were covered. I mean, there, were, there was just stuff everywhere and people everywhere because we had VBS, and I just want to recognize and say thank you to all of you who served uh, this past week. It was truly unbelievable. At one point, uh, we had probably about 50 kids here in the sanctuary. Um, at one point, I was wearing a king's costume with a big fat belly. Um, I mean, Jonah was up here emceeing. Caitlin was leading music. We, we had people doing registration. People, I mean, I, I think I threw 700 water balloons uh, outside. My arm was genuinely sore, so it just shows my age, I guess. Um, but, but listen, like, it was truly a really fun time, and I believe a Christ-honoring time. Uh, there are some amazing stories coming out already from VBS, just the way that God in his incredible sovereignty worked to bring kids here. Um, and so maybe some of those will come out uh, in the coming weeks. But I just want to remind you, I, I, I believe this. Not only you know, was I a youth pastor uh, for really six and a half years, but I've been in youth ministry for a long time. And we don't need this stat, but I, I think it's important to remember that 90%, about 90% of people trust Christ before their 21st birthday. It's an incredible mission field if you think about it. It's an incredible mission field, an incredible opportunity for us to speak truth into the lives of children and young people. So please continue to pray for our children's ministry, even today, right? As they're under the word, pray for our youth ministry. Um, uh, you can also pray, as I think about it, for our other guys, Jonah and Joe. They're away this weekend. It just happened to be work out that it all fell to me. <laughs> and so, but you pray for them as they get time away with their families and enjoy uh, rest. Why don't you do this at this point, though? Grab your Bibles. We got to get to God's word. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to look this morning at verses 34 to 39. Let me read the verses and then I'll pray and we will get 
started today. It says this, Matthew 10, starting in verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let me pray before we jump in. God, allow us to understand the radical nature of this text. Lord, allow us to hear it and believe it and respond to it with obedience. Lord, we need your spirit to work now in our lives. Lord, please help me to to be able to communicate clearly. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was a, a youth pastor, I had an opportunity to teach a Sunday morning, what we called equipping class. And, and uh, our church actually didn't have the, uh, a building at the time. We were kind of meeting in a high school. And so I was meeting kind of in a, in a, in a kind of a different room. It was actually across the street from the school, kind of a different place, a little cafe type place. And, and I had a group of junior high and high school students. And I had a young girl come in one time with her mom. I don't know. I think the girl may have been a junior higher at the time. And, 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 and I remember them coming in, and the, and the room that we met in had a stage like this, but over here to the right was a door that kind of led into a hallway into a, to another room. And so this girl comes in, and, and I meet them and, and the mom, and, and I realized uh, after a couple weeks that the mom actually wasn't just dropping off her daughter, but the mom was actually just sitting out of sight in the adjacent room uh, off of the hallway. And I remember uh, one morning I, I finished preaching, or, or actually it was just, we were, t- I think, working through a book, and, and I saw the mom as I was leaving, and I'd, I'd seen that she had been crying. And I said, oh, hey, are, are you okay? And, and I remember she says, oh, I'm just so happy. I'm just so happy. She said, these are happy tears. I've just always wanted me and my daughter to learn about Christ and to learn about Jesus, and I'm learning so much along with her. I thought, oh man, wow, right? And I was kind of amazed. I had no idea that she had been in there and had been doing that, and here she is. She's been, she's been learning, and, and so I began talking to her, and I learned that she was a teacher at the local high school, and another high school, a Christian high school teacher, had invited her to church. And then I learned at some point that, that she had gotten saved, and then I learned a very, very important aspect of her life. She was actually part of a Sikh family, Sikh, S-I-K-H. And, and there are a number, where we were in California, there are a number of Sikh and Hindu temples in, in that area there, because of the farming community. And, and what, I, what I understood from talking to this mom that morning is that she had come to Christ, but yet she was keeping her faith a secret from her family. And I remember listening to her describe how she and her daughter were coming to church secretly. And if her family had, would find out, they would likely be disowned, just completely removed. And I could tell she was incredibly worried. She was actually very fearful of this. I think that's actually why she wasn't even going to the main service. She was actually coming over to this other building. And honestly, this morning, I don't know what happened to that mom. 
I, I don't have a bow that I can wrap perfectly on that story to know what happened to her. I saw them for a little bit, but then they weren't around. But here's the thing. As I, as I looked at this text that we read this morning, the truth is, from this text this morning, that's, ex- that that's exactly what Jesus is saying could happen to you when you follow him. That's exactly what could happen. You actually might lose some of your closest relationships. You might lose some of your family identity. You might even lose your whole family. This is, this morning for us, the cost of discipleship. This is the cost of following Christ. If I had more time with that mom, I'd want to make sure she knows this. Listen, following Jesus doesn't make life easier all the time, does it? In fact, sometimes it actually makes it harder. And yet, according to Christ, even though following him can bring more pain, more suffering, more hostility, it's the only way to true life. In fact, Jesus says he is actually better than life. Following Christ is better than life itself because it's only through Jesus that one experiences true life. Life. And that's what I wanna that's what I wanna unpack for us in this text this morning. I have what I often do is a, a big picture thought. It should come up on the screen. Here's my here's my summary. If I could just summarize this text, here's what it would be. You might be distressed at the results of Jesus' coming, but you must hear the demand for loyalty from Jesus so that you can discover that by dying you'll live. You might be distressed at the results of Jesus' coming, but you must hear the demand for loyalty from Jesus so that you can discover that by dying, you'll live. I hope that you can see this with me. I have an outline. Should pop up all three of these. It's really just a breakdown of that very paragraph. The distressing results of Jesus' coming, the demand for loyalty to Jesus, and the death that leads to life. The distressing results of Jesus' coming, the demand for loyalty to Jesus, and the death that leads to life. Let's look first at the distressing results of Jesus' coming. It starts there in verse 34. Look at it with me. It says this, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I mean, these really are distressing words from Christ, are they not? Even as I first began to kind of study this passage, I thought to myself, that just can't be right. Maybe you thought this too. How can Jesus say he's not come to bring peace? I mean, I've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount just a few chapters earlier in Matthew 5, and I got to that that great beatitude in 5.9 that says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So it's confusing, right, to some sense. How can Jesus now say he's, he's not come to bring peace, but earlier say, Blessed are the peacemakers? I mean... These are shocking words in many ways from Christ. Shocking words. They would have been just as shocking to the original hearers as they are to us because the original hearers, like you who are a good student of the Bible, understand that isn't the Messiah, isn't the one who comes, isn't he called the Prince of Peace? Isn't that one of his names? Isaiah 9, 6 says it very clearly. It'll come up. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They were looking for a Messiah who would bring peace. They would have known well Psalm 72, 7. 
speaks of a ruler from the line of David. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. The Messiah is a bringer of peace. Zechariah 9.10, the purpose for this Messiah, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. This is what the Messiah does. And of course, you know well, Luke 2, or the angels, what are they singing? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. But Jesus' words, I have not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword, they, they shock us, at least they should. They're shocking words. And Jesus actually, he actually says something further. He says, do not think that I have come. Do not think that I have come. He used the exact same language actually in a text I just preached to our young adults in Matthew 5, 17. There, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This language of, of, of coming, of, of don't think that I've come, it, it, it's, a, it's a phrase of purpose. It's a phrase of mission. And there in Matthew 5, he's saying, don't think that I've made it my mission to abolish the law. I haven't. That's not what I've come to do. And here he says, do not think that I've made it my mission to bring peace. So again, I think we understand the intensity of these words. But what does he say his mission is? He says, I've not come to bring peace, but what? A sword, a sword. And you think to yourself, a sword? Jesus, come on. Right, we know he's not talking about a, a literal sword. That's not what he meant. The word here, he, he's using it as a metaphor. He's using the word sword here in the sense of conflict, in the sense of suffering, in the sense of division, in the sense of separation. So we could summarize it this way. My mission was not to bring peace, but division. My mission wasn't to bring peace, but a sword. And as one commentator put it, the, the mission statement here is meant to shock I mean, we're used to hearing mission statements these days, aren't we? Like, we're used to hearing them, right? right? Like churches, organizations have them. I mean, I feel like there was a time in the early 2000s that everybody was like, ooh, I need a mission statement. And if you don't have a mission statement, I'm not even, you're not even a real church. Like, it was like mission statement mayhem. Right, we actually have one. We have one at Redemption Hill. It's based off of 2 Corinthians 5.9. You'll see it on the front page of our website. I don't think it's out on our sign, but it says this. We aim to please him. We aim to please him. It's from 2 Corinthians 5, 9. And then it says, our mission is to glorify God by making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. I'm like, all right, I like that. I can get behind that. But what if we put a sign outside and imagine it says this, Redemption Hill Bible Church, we aim for division. <laughs> right? Our mission is to bring conflict into your life. Can you imagine? I mean, I'm not a marketing genius. Right? But I don't think that's going to bring the people into the church building. But this is what Jesus is saying here. In fact, he doubles down. 
he actually doubles down. Look down at verse 35. He actually brings this home sort of in a, in a literal sense. In verse 30, 35, he says this, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Again, all of this meant to shock all of this kind of language. Jesus is now putting feet to the kind of division that could come when you follow him. It's the kind of division that comes to the most precious of all relationships between those in your home and between you. I mean, when I first started studying, I just listed it out. He has come to set man against father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And then he summarizes it all in 36, and a person's enemies would be those of his own household. Those don't need a lot of explanation. They're clear to us. This is close family conflict. And Jesus here is actually quoting a text. You don't have to turn there. I try to put all these up on the screen for you. Hopefully they're all there. But Jesus is quoting here Micah 7, 6. And Micah 7, 6, just listen, you'll hear the same language. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter in law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies are the men of his own house. Most Jews would have interpreted that text in Micah as the moral corruption that's going to happen before the Messiah comes. Like things are going to get bad. People are going to rise up against their own families and it's not going to be good. And they would have, they would have understood it that way. This is what happens before the Messiah comes. But in Matthew, Jesus flips it around. He's using this text to describe the reality of his mission and the distressing results of following him. This isn't what happens before the Messiah comes. It's what happens when he comes at his coming. And what Jesus wants his hearers to understand is that this is what it can mean to follow him. This is one of the results. When you follow Christ, listen, church, your family might hate you. It's not an easy reality for me to even say that to you this morning. Now, to balance this, I think we understand that this isn't Christian and Christian in the home. That's not the kind of division Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about the division between a believer and an unbeliever. Those who are following Christ and those who are not following Christ. Those who have not come to believe in Christ. That they may, might become your enemies. And I want to clarify something too. Listen, if you're wondering, Shay, didn't we read the Romans 5 text today that says he brings peace right, with God? yes. Yes and amen. Don't be confused. Jesus does bring peace to your heart when you come to Christ. And I would call on you to come to Christ today. Believe in Christ today to have the, the, the real peace that you need to have with God. I mean, it's the same thing Colossians 1, 19 and 20 say. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, here it is, making peace by the blood of the cross. Yes, and amen. He is a bringer of peace to your heart between your relationship with God. But it, it might have an effect on your earthly relationships. This is what happens when you commit your life to Christ. His teaching becomes divisive in your own home. I mean, I've heard of this happening. I was a missionary in Czech Republic for a time. I remember one young high school girl she came to Christ at one of the camps that the ministry we were a part of had put on. She came home, told her parents, who then abruptly kicked her out of her house 
thinking she was crazy. How could you believe in God? Czech Republic is a nation, very godless nation. So her parents disown her. This happens in the Middle East all the time. In fact, in one account, I heard of a young girl had become a Christian and had to flee for her life because her dad was actually pursuing her to kill her. I read another story this week, and I won't belabor this, but a woman in North Africa was brought to a Christian medical clinic in a wheelbarrow. She was brought there in a wheelbarrow, and she got good medical care. And they took care of her. And of course, the Christian doctors and nurses, they shared Christ with her, right? They're not just concerned about her body, but of course about her soul. And so they share Christ with her. And she comes to Christ and she goes home and she shares the new joy that she has in Christ with her father. And he abruptly began to beat her. Incredibly, in that story, that woman remained faithful to Christ and her own father came to Christ and now goes from village to village sharing the gospel as an evangelist. Unbelievable. But I think we recognize from Christ's words this is the kind of harsh treatment that can happen. And, and this shouldn't surprise us. In fact, it, Jesus was already talking about it. If you just look earlier in Matthew 10, G Jesus actually anticipates this. Look back at verse 21 in Matthew 10. Do you see it there? Right? He, he, he says it this way. Brother will deliver a brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Wow. Jesus told the disciples it was for his name's sake. And just jump over to verse 24. Jesus here again explaining this. He says, the disciple is not above his teacher. This is all in the context of persecution here. He says, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. How are they going to be like each other? Well, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more would they malign those of his household? See what Jesus is doing? He's setting it up. He's saying, disciples, listen, this is what could happen to you. This is how it may go. And while church, this may not be the universal experience of every disciple of Christ, these could be the distressing result of Jesus' coming, that it even comes to divide even the closest of family ties. I mean, you guys know Christ's life. Didn't this happen to Jesus himself? Do you remember? In Mark chapter 3, it should come up, Right? Jesus had this as a personal experience, right? He's been out healing people and they're following him. And then listen to what the text says in Mark 3. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. It's a busy day for Christ. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's just out of his mind. This is an experience that Christ himself had in his own family. They want to capture him. They think he's nutty. Like, what's wrong with this guy? And listen, I want to make sure you understand something about this text. It's not that this is some kind of badge that we put on. Oh, listen, yeah, my family hates me, right? Because I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm here just to bring enmity, right? And that's what I'm trying to do inside my own family. No, we, we, I think we get it, right? The, you're not trying to bring enmity and hate in your family. It's just simply this. It's a matter of priority, 
It's a matter of priority. In fact, that's what brings us to the second point this morning. We go from the distressing result of Jesus' coming to the demand for loyalty to Jesus. Look, look what it says there. It says in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Right? You might be distressed at the results of Jesus' coming, but you must hear the demand for loyalty from Jesus. This is the demand that he puts on all those who will follow him. It's that they prioritize their love and their loyalty to Jesus above all other relationships. It's also how we know that Jesus never demanded hating one's own family. Jesus actually assumes that people are going to love their family and their parents, but his concern is one of priority, is one of placement and loyalty for his disciples. Will they love their mom and dad more than him? Will the moms and dads love their children more than Christ? Who will they be loyal to? Will they be more loyal to their family or to Christ. And if they're more loyal to their own family, Jesus says they're not worthy of him. Now that word love in that, in that text is a strong word. Right? I know we cheapen it, right? I say I love my wife and I love in and out, right? And I, like, that's the language you've got, right? We use that word all the time. But when Jesus uses love in regards to family, he's talking about the warmest of affections. The, the, the warmest of affections. It, love, right? It's what binds people together. It's not just about our DNA. It's about affection, care, and love for each other. It, it keeps us. It, what, it's what makes people sacrifice for their family and give their family, give to their family, to their own hurt. Right? We even use that language to describe close friends. Like, he, he's, a, he's like a brother to me. Right? We, we, what we mean is that I, I love that guy and I care for him deeply. It's a warm affection. And Jesus, of course, is not forbidding anyone from loving their family, but is demanding that we check our own priorities. And we make sure that we love Christ even more than those we hold to be nearest and dearest to us. Once again, shocking language from Christ just keeps on one hit after another because in the minds of the Jews during this time, it was actually a dreadful thing to prioritize anybody above one's parents. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't prioritize someone above parents. And here Jesus is demanding loyalty. He's demanding love, which just tells us something very important. Jesus isn't just anyone, is he? He's not just any guy coming around saying, hey, come be loyal to me. There's something very important about Christ. There's something special about him to demand the kind of love that he demands. He's more than just a great leader and teacher. It's because he is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior that he can demand such loyalty. We might say this, it's because he's God, very God, that he can demand that kind of love. Only God can demand that kind of loyalty and love. Anything less, says Christ, makes us unworthy of Christ. Now, I know you saw that word. It says, anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he repeats it again. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Think, what exactly does that mean? Well, there's another way to translate it is it means to not be fit to be his disciple. Not fit to be 
a disciple. Or as one commentator said, maybe in our modern English, it'd be like this. It'd be not having what it takes. Not having what it takes to follow Christ. Let me ask you, church, do you have what it takes to follow Christ? Are you fit to be his disciple? Are you worthy of him? You'll know, you'll know by your love for him against all other loves, even those that you hold most closely. I remember one time I was helping out a church with their music and I was in the office, I was doing something and there was a young um, admin uh, girl who was working in the office, I think she worked a couple days a week and I was talking to her, we were talking about, I think about the Sunday that was coming up and, and there was, the church was having a missions trip. And, and, and I remember, she probably couldn't have been more than 20 years old. And I was talking to her about this and I said, oh, is, is that something that you'd want to go on? Like, I was like kind of excited. I was like, hey, are you going to go on this trip? And I remember her, what she said. She goes, oh, no way. Like, I could never do that. That's way too far from my parents. It's way too far from home. Now, listen, I don't want to hold that against this, that one statement against her. She was young, and I understand that. But I remember in that moment being just subtly disappointed. Just kind of going, ah, oh, man, her, are her priorities just off a little bit? Because what would it take? What would it take for her to leave all and follow Christ? Even just for a week or two on a, on a short missions trip, does she love her mom and dad more than Christ? Right? What if he calls her to the end of the earth to go and to take the gospel, which we know he's going to do in Matthew 28? Go, therefore, and make disciples where? Of all nations. All nations. So were her loves just off? Were her affections for her family greater than her affections for Christ? I don't know. But they might be for you this morning. They might be. It's something for you to check in your own heart. It's something that I want for our church, deeply want for my own life, that I want for my own children's children. Who is precious to you? Who is more precious? Is it Christ or your kids? Theologian and pastor John Piper, he likes the word treasure in regards to speaking of the, the kind of love that he's talking about here. Do you treasure your kids so much that you would feel betrayed by them, parents, if they up and said, listen, mom, I actually have a call to go to the nations. What would your response be? That's a good check for your heart. I mean, I just came to my mind the other day, Bethany and I were with a, with a mom and we were weeping with her because she was telling us, she goes, oh, we asked her about her, her daughter about to go to college. She said, oh, where's your, where's your daughter going to college? I said, oh, she's going to a school. In, she was going to go to a school in Southern California. And, she, and then she said this, but actually she's going to take a gap year. And you never know what's going to happen when someone says that. Like a gap year, okay. And she goes, no, she's going to take a gap year and she's going to go overseas for nine months. She decided to take a break from college because she wants to go visit four countries two months at a time, and she's raising $16,000 right now. And then she said this, me and her father couldn't be more happy, and we just began to weep with her. Because in my mind, there's a mom who's got her priorities right. Treasuring Christ and the mission of Christ above all those relationships. And she said, it's going to be dangerous, there's going to be things that happen, but we're trusting the Lord. That might be a good check for your own, own heart, parents. Or children, do you treasure mom and dad so highly 
that your love for them exceeds your desire to honor the Lord, that you wouldn't even consider following Christ wherever he called. When I was a youth pastor, I used to tell our parents, I got four pillars for our youth ministry. I want your kids to love God. I just, oh, that's what I want, number one. Number two, I want them to love his word. If I've got six years, two years for junior high, four years for high school, I, I want them to love God and love his word. And I always tell parents, thirdly, I, I want them to love his church. The church where they can grow and they can use their gifts and fellowship, I want them to love it. And I always say, number four, I always said this, and I want them to love the world. Like, what? Doesn't the Bible say don't love the world? I always had to clarify. No, no, listen. I want them to love God and their neighbor so much that wherever God calls them, wherever he's asking them to go, that they would take the good news of Christ there. And so I tell the parents, I'm praying a very scary prayer for your children. I'm praying that your kids become missionaries, whether you like it or not. That they're willing to go, even if it's hard to go across the street or across the globe. So I, I, my intent was never to be rude, and my intent is not to be rude or, or unkind this morning, but rather to remind us to hold even our children loosely because Jesus demands that our love for our own families take a back seat in our comparison to our love for him. That's what I think Jesus is saying. He's demanding supreme loyalty. So parents, show your kids Christ. Show them Christ. Show them how much you love him. And let's be careful that we don't give our kid the wrong impression on where our loves are. I had a, this is a funny story to me. I had a sweet Hispanic woman come up to me one time at church. Titus was probably four or five. We're, we're big Dodger fans. She's, oh, Dodgers, all day. And, and a mom came up to me, and she's the sweetest. Her name's Josie. She's the best. Just the sweetest Hispanic. She goes, Brother Shay. She comes up, and she goes, She's tiny. She's you're probably looking at me like this, you know. Brother Shay. And she'd been playing with Titus just a few minutes before. She goes, just remember, your children's first heroes should be the ones of the scriptures. I thought, yeah, I think I've been making disciples of the Dodgers. <laughs> I think you're, he, his heroes should be those in here. Right? We need some older women in our church that are willing to come up to the young men and tell them that. To remind them that, where's your love? Where's your kids' love? And, and, and I, I want to I help you understand this. Jesus, this is strong language. There's a kind of a parallel text in Luke 14. It should come up. It says this in 14.26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That is about as strong of language. We don't even really let, we don't even let our kids use the H word hate in our home. Here it is in our text. And Jesus here, it's an expression in the language of loving less or loving more. And he's saying, listen, you must love Christ more, so much more that it actually can look like hate. This is the cost of following Christ. I remember hearing a missionary, he preached, for, uh, uh, I heard a story of a, of a missionary who preached uh, Luke 14, and he finished preaching, and the pastor came up after, and he goes, listen, we're not messing around today. And he goes, compared to Christ, and he, I think his kids were here, he says, I, I hate my family. Now, I don't recommend that. <laughs> okay, I don't. But I think it does pick up the strength of Jesus' language here. 
that I do not want to be lost, not lost on you. Listen, later in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 15, Christ is going to make it very clear. We are to honor our fathers and mothers. But listen, listen, listen carefully. If God calls you in a certain direction, into a certain place that even your parents don't like, the true disciple will know who they love more. I used to tell young people and people I counsel all the time, listen, you are called to honor your parents. But if they ask you to disobey Christ, you'll know who you're supposed to obey in that moment. Christ demands supreme loyalty. We must set our priorities in the proper order with Christ way up at the top. So this takes us, I mean, Jesus doesn't stop here. I'm going to finish. But there's a loyalty he demands. This takes us from the distressing results of Jesus' coming to the demand for loyalty to Jesus. Thirdly here, to the death that leads to life. Let's look at this lastly here. Look what it says. The death that leads to life. You might be distressed at the results of Jesus' coming, but you must hear the demand for loyalty from Jesus so that you can, listen, discover that by dying, you'll live. That's what happens here in verse 38. Look at it. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The kind of loyalty Jesus demands goes goes even beyond our close family relationships and now deals with our very lives. He says in this text that the disciple must take his cross and follow me, which you and I clearly understand is a willingness to die. A willingness to die. I have no idea, I have no doubt that this is a familiar text to you. And it's not only familiar because we've read it, we've probably heard it preached, But sometimes you'll hear people say, well, that's just my cross to bear. Right, you've heard that language? Yeah, she's bearing her cross today. And we sometimes use it for seemingly like small things. Yeah, he's bearing his cross. He's got to mow the hole on. (laughs) And we almost kind of use it as a joke, don't we? Like bearing our cross. And yet Jesus here is not joking around. He, he's, he's not mincing words. When he says, take up your cross, everybody staying there would have understood what that meant and they would have been horrified. We've probably become too familiar with cross-bearing language and the cross as a symbol to fully capture the feelings and, kind of, and the kind of imagery that this would have evoked in the original hearers. You know well the cross was an instrument of torture crucifixion. It was a form of shame and punishment. The Romans loved it. The Jews hated it. It would bring social disgrace, did the cross. To have one of your family members crucified was the ultimate shame. And you'll know, and you do know, it was very public, wasn't it? Cross-bearing, Not only would the criminal be crucified up on the cross for all to see, they would have to carry their cross down the middle of the road to the scorn and mocking of others. So let's not let the cross get lost as we think about, oh, carrying our cross. Listen, the cross, when you carry down that street, it's a one-way street, isn't it? It's all the way to death. I want you to make sure when you hear take up your cross, this isn't just some simple hardship. Right? This isn't just, you know, mowing the lawn. This is death itself. This is the image that Jesus wants us to understand. And what he holds out 
He holds out to anyone who would be worthy of him. He uses that language, doesn't he? He says, you want to be worthy of me? Right? Take up your cross and follow me. If you can't, you're not worthy. Same language. You're not fit to be my disciple. My disciple. And he holds out to you. If you want to follow Christ, as one commentator said, <laughs> a savage death and a public disgrace. It's the cost of following Christ. And if I'm honest with you guys this morning, that verse scares me. It's scary. Right? That while martyrdom may not be something that we all experience here, we're still called to recognize and accept the possibility of dying in service to Christ. Now, some people would take that text to mean you just die to self-interest. You're just dying to self-interest. And I'm like, no, I don't think, and there may be some truth to that. I don't think that's what Jesus is after. He's using cross language in the sense of literal death. The furthest, the furthest I might be able to go with you based on the context here is that persecution and suffering may be cross-bearing, as laid out earlier in the chapter where Jesus speaks specifically of, of maligning and persecution. But Jesus' call to his disciples is to come and die, to give it all up. Anything, that le anything less makes them unworthy. And while that is a real and sobering thought that you and I need to take to heart this morning, I want you to know there's still hope in this text. He doesn't end there. Look at verse 39. See how he ends. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You might be asking yourself after this morning, listen, Pastor Shea, I mean, you just told me that I got the possibility of losing my family. I got the possibility of, you know, there being division and conflict among, among my, my, my loved ones. And now you're kind of talking about me losing my life. They say, Pastor Shea, that's a, that's a hard word. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you're asking yourself this question. Is it worth it? Is following Christ worth all of that? I think that's what Jesus wants to answer in verse 39. And it's clearly a paradoxical statement. But I think you can understand it if you just break it down like this. In the first half, he says, whoever finds his life will lose it. What does he mean? I think Jesus is speaking of life here and now. He's talking about priorities again. When we consider our lives here on earth and find our ultimate delight and treasure in this stuff and these people, if that's where the most delight we have, then we find our life and we lose it. Douglas O'Donnell, he said it so well. If you're doing everything in your power to make it, to get the perfect spouse, the lucrative job, the big house, and all the right connections, guess what? You lose. The biggest gainers are the biggest losers. I think he's right. You want to lose big? Then go after everything in this life and with everything you've got without any, without any regard for Christ. That's ultimate loss. It's the biggest loss of all time. Bigger than any financial, emotional, relational loss. Because listen, this life, right, you know is temporal. All the money, all the fame, anything that you can get, it's all temporary. Even our closest relationships, right, those in that sense are temporary. All of earthly life is temporary. So holding on to it and treasuring it Above everything is just foolishness. Because, right, you can't keep it. And more importantly, because you forfeit eternal life. Real life. So Jesus says, listen, you want to find your life? You want real, lasting, eternal joy? What's he say? Then whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want to find your life? Lose it for 
Christ. Be willing, that is be willing to give it all up for Christ, to forsake any relationship, any pleasure, anything including your own physical life. That's what it means to be worthy of Jesus. Again, Douglas O'Donnell, I'll read the rest of what he said. If you're doing everything in your power to make it, to get the perfect spouse, the lucrative job, the big house, and all the right connections, guess what? You lose. The biggest gainers are the biggest losers. But But if you are willing to come to Jesus as king and to give him your life and say, here's my life, Lord, it's all yours. I'll go where you would have me to go, do what you'd have me to do, give what you'd have me to give, suffer what you'd have me suffer, then you will find life, true life in this life and true life in the life to come. He's absolutely right. We need to discover that the death that leads to life That, that, that this is the death that leads to life. That is life in the now and life in the eternal. I have in my office, maybe as a way of closing this morning, I have two little kind of phrases that face my desk. One's kind of to the side, one faces me. I have one right across my desk that says this, men who rarely take risks rarely do anything. So this week, you know what my risk was? I jumped on the trash to get it to go down with the guys, and I told them, I was like, I'm taking risks right now. Right? But I, I have that there. I have that there to remind myself, listen, when you're scared, Shay, you probably should do it. Probably should do it. So men who rarely take risks rarely do anything. Right? I probably need to take the risk and, and lose it. And then to, similar to that, I have over here to my side as I'm facing my door, I have a, a banner it's one that you can see if you walk up to my office. You can re- I, I, I can look at it every day as I come in. And, and they're the words of a martyred missionary. He was 28 when he died, along with his four missionary friends who were speared by the very Indians in Ecuador that they were trying to witness to. You probably already know who I'm talking about. They're the words from Jim Elliott. He wrote them, these words that are on my banner. He wrote them some six years before he'd be killed there at what was called Palm Beach down in Ecuador. He wrote them at the age of 22. There are these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's been said that those words may be the most famous missionary words outside of the Bible. But don't they capture in some sense the sense of what Jesus is talking about this morning? He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You can't keep your life. That's a fool's errand. You and I will die. The question before us is whether we will die treasuring Christ above everything and anyone else, including our own lives. That's why I think Jim Elliott, Jim Elliott says to gain that which he cannot lose. When you gain Christ, you never lose. You have life and life eternal. And I say, oh, praise the Lord. Maybe we could say it simply this morning. Jesus is better than life itself. He's better than life because when you lose your life for him, you find it in him. So let me remind you what we've been saying. You might be distressed at the results of Jesus' coming, but you must hear the demand for loyalty from Jesus. Listen, so that you can discover that by dying, you'll live. Now, this is the part of the sermon where I wasn't sure how this was going to go. But I asked the band to not come up I, and I wasn't going to pray. I want to sing with you a song called Jesus, I My Cross Have Taken. 
It's an old hymn. I think the melody has been updated just ever so slightly. And I kind of want to sing it as a closing prayer. I know that's strange, but when you're doing both, I I guess I get to decide whatever I want to (laughs) do. Would you stand with me? Would you stand with me? Thank you for being so patient always under God's word. Really not an easy text to preach, but an important text for us this morning. I've got two mics on, so I'm going to do this. Am I on, guys? There we go. All right. Jesus on my cross today. Will you sing this as a prayer this morning? These are some hard words to sing. As hard words as it was to preach this morning, these are hard words to sing. But it's important for us to remember what we're doing. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee destitute despised forsaken now from hands my all shall be perish every fond ambition all I've sought hoped or known Yet how rich is my condition, God in heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me, they have left my Savior too. Hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and mind, hate and friends disown. In thy service, pain is pledged. With thy favor, lost I have called thee, Abba, Father. I have stained my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather, all must work for good to me. Okay, we're going to sing one more verse in a second, but I want to show you the last line. It says, 
think that Jesus died to win thee, child of heaven, canst thou repine? What does that mean? Child of heaven, canst thou repine? It means, child of heaven, don't fret. Don't worry. Let's sing this. So then know thy full salvation. Rise o'er sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every stage. Something still to do or there. Think what spirit dwells within me. Think what Father smiles on us. Think that Jesus died to win. Child of heaven, canst thou Haste on from grace to glory. On my faith and Eternal days before God's own hand shall guide us there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim day. Hope shall change to glad fruition. To sigh and prayer to pray. Lord Jesus, I hope that's true. That Lord, go then earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn and pain. Lord, the thought of that is sobering. It's not a thought that I enjoy, but Lord. That's because there's still areas in my heart that need to love Christ more. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray you'd help us to place Jesus above all this week, today. And God, that you get all the glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.